Welcome to Precision Medicine Forum Podcast, chatting with patients, healthcare, industry and research professionals about creating personalized medicines for each and every one of us. Together, we head to the Holy Grail, mainstream precision medicine. Here's your host, Scott Buckler. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to our special anniversary edition of the Precision Medicine Forum podcast. We are celebrating uh, 10 years of genomic development and 10 years since the anniversary of former Prime Minister David Cameron's announcement of investment into the 100,000 genomes and genome sequencing. We've already heard from Chris Wigley, the CEO of Genomics England, um, and I'm delighted today to be joined by the team from Deviser. Uh, we've got Turid and Dan, who are representing Deviser, who are sponsoring our podcast series. And we're going to talk a little bit today about the benefits of collaboration from the industry as part of genome sequencing and genomics, but also a little bit more about the solutions that are on offer to support genomics moving forward. Uh, so first of all, um, I want to say uh, hello to Turid and to Dan. Um, and they are joining us today um, to, to speak a little bit more about the solutions that device have to offer. But first and foremost, I wanted to go to yourself, Turid, uh, firstly, just to tell us a little bit more about your personal perspective on the genomic development and genomics in this last 10 years and, and how you've seen that from both a professional and personal capacity develop. Thank you so much. I'll be happy to. To back the band a little bit, I did my uh, education within molecular cell biology, uh, which was really fascinating at the time. And over those uh, years since being out in the professional world, I've seen the advancements, the knowledge increase and the technology increase uh, going quite fast as well. And to me, being trained in the uh, in the more technical aspects, uh, it is fascinating to be in a commercial role within the life science industry to be able to use the knowledge, the technology uh, that we have to do uh, to do better, to do good. Um, the technology is fascinating, but in the end of the day, I would say it's not the technology for for the technology itself. It's rather the knowledge and the experiences uh, that we have seen to be used uh, for the benefit of the patient to the patient's safety. That to me is crucial. Dan, uh, your personal uh, background and, and, and understanding um, of genomics is, 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 is quite in-depth. Tell us your sort of experience and how you've seen genomics as a, as a, as a subject matter as a, from a clinical perspective develop in this last decade. Thank you very much. Since 10 years or even more, we have seen clinic or genomics going from research and the lab bench into the clinics. And I think there's probably not one specialty in the clinics today that is not affected by the knowledge and the depth of the knowledge within genomics today. You have assays to define certain circumstances within the clinic. You can define uh, diseases which are treatable or maybe not non-treatable today. 
and you have also gone into specific applications based on the knowledge that has evolved during the last 10 years, which really changed the clinical work that is performed today, and it will change even more in the future, I'm quite sure. Tell us a little bit more about your background, Dan, at Deviser and what your role is, and also uh, with the Karolinska Institute um, that you've been part of. Tell us a little bit more about that. I am a physician. I was uh, trained in clinical immunology and transplantation immunology. I made my PhD in uh, Karolinska many years ago today. And I've been heading the urban clinical or medical director is the better term for the transplantation laboratory at the Karolinska for over 17 years or so. And I was also one of three guys that actually started Divisor, a genomics company or genetic asset company in 2004, I think it was. And we have really uh, made um, progress hand in hand since much or part of what we do at Divisor evolves from my clinical experience in the lab um, at the Karolinska Hospital. This lab actually serves both hematopoietic stem cell transplantation and solid organ transplantation. We are one of uh, maybe four labs in Sweden that are within this very special field of tissue typing. And we have, I'm proud to say, uh, developed a lot of homebrew assays on our own, very much based on clinical demands. And one of these assays, or at least two assays now, did we actually develop together with Devisor because it was a too big task to develop an NGS-based assay in the in the in a laboratory as ours, although quite big, but not as skilled as the people are in Devisor. I love the terminology there, homebrew assay. Yeah. Let's just picture that for a second first. Anybody who's not of a, a medical professional background, you, you're talking really there of uh, an organic, an original assay that's been developed in-house um, yes. using your own background experience and a matter of um, give and take and trial and error. You, you touched on quickly there about collaboration at the use of device with the Karolinska Institute. Um, Terry, just for you for a second, how important is that relationship with Karolinska and how important is that a collaboration between academia, research and industry within genomics? Is that something that's mirrored across a lot of companies outside the Vice as well? I would say that collaboration is of an immense importance. Um, whatever we do uh, has a clinical relevance. It is based on uh, the genomics knowledge that we have internally divisor uh, and together with the clinical applications needed, uh, we are able to design something that actually makes a difference. Uh, wouldn't we have those collaborations uh, between the industry, between the patient uh, organization, between the clinicians, the physicians? Uh, we would have been, you know, a, a bunch of very good molecular bi cell biologists together with a bunch of good bioinformaticians uh, running around doing a lot of good stuff. So that collaboration is crucial, I would say. How we get to this homebrew, uh, so to speak, is a mixture of, as you said, physicians, industry. Mm -hmm. 
what are the ingredients to to each of these then so so from from your perspective dan industry coming to support from a, a research point of view what are industry bringing into this that can't be found within the institute and what was it that they added to your particular assay to make it successful or to make it commercially viable i suppose that's a good question um what we perform in assay way at at our laboratory is very much a demand or a gentle request from our clinicians to serve them with with certain information and um Karolinska uh, has been a very research near um hospital where we have had very close collaborations between our laboratory and the clinical staff where in this collaboration a request a gentle request comes up to develop something that serves a purpose where they um enhancing or um uh, improving is better the clinical decision and in some cases we are very very early in the development this is just beyond research based assays so probably in certain cases as we have um encountered there is no assay solution available on the market so this is when we develop something at the laboratory uh, ourselves and this is what i called homebrew and at a certain point as the complexity grows as um you have you need a software solution to interpret the results you need bioinformaticians that help you to interpret these results that you obtain at that point at least our institution was not sophisticated and big enough to to um, to actually serve the clinicians with these solutions and this is when you have to reach out to uh, companies or the industry to see if they can help you with that. And, the, and in this case, they could. And it's a give and take, of course. We have a lot of clinical material. We have the basis for them to develop the assays. And they can also validate their assays on patient or sample material that we that is available in our laboratory. And that is absolutely crucial for the companies to get hold on material, clinical material samples where they actually can prove um, their principle and their assay validity. So for us, it has been absolutely crucial in order to take the next step in this sophisticated uh, assay development uh, within the next generation sequencing this is something we could not do anymore. So here we will, uh, really did this journey hand in hand where they gave an input with solid knowledge um, how to perform these assays, how to develop them, and how to do a software which is suitable for analysis. And we could test what they actually did and compare what we had in the laboratory. So it's a very close collaboration and uh, and I think it's absolutely essential today to have a much closer collaboration than we have had today between the industry and, and, and the clinic. This special edition of the Precision Medicine Forum podcast is proudly brought to you by Devisa, the pioneering leader in diagnostic solutions for genetic testing.
I presume that from out of this collaboration and research was the the solution, the what you call the chimerism, which is one of your um, uh, devices solutions. Tell me um, a little bit more about the chimerism and, um, and how it's used in a, a clinical setting in relation to uh, medical profession and clinical uh, support for professionals. First of all, what is chimerism? What is a chimera? We have essentially in one sample the presence of uh, normally one individual, but in a chimera you have the presence of two or even more individuals within the same samples. And you can have that naturally occurring. For instance, um, uh, twin uh, pregnancies where you have a common blood um, communication or a bloodstream between the two twins. You have an exchange of cells, so you will find cells from twin one in twin two and vice versa, and even between the children and the mother. That is naturally occurring. That happens very often. But then you have something you can maybe term induced chimerism, and this is when you introduce cells which are not from the patient into the patient, foreign cells, you would say. Typical example for that is hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. That is what previously was called bone marrow transplantation, where you replace the patient's bone marrow with a quite strong pretreatment, chemotherapy, to mainly eradicate the patient's own bone marrow and replace it by the bone marrow of a donor. It can be a sibling, can be a parent, can also be an unrelated uh, donor. And the whole idea about that is in many cases where you have a hematological malignancy like a leukemia, you know that the patient's own immune system is not capable of taking care of this leukemia anymore. This is why the malignant cells are evolving within the patient. So what you do then is that you would try to eradicate as much of the leukemia and the bone marrow where the leukemia actually is housing as possible prior to the transplantation. And then you add these donor cells, this donor bone marrow. And then you hope and you wish for the donor bone marrow uh, being established in the bone marrow or in the bones in, of the patient. And what comes out of the bone marrow after a couple of weeks is are cells, blood cells from the donor. And this is where our assay actually comes in because patients today, we are matching, we are doing a very, very good job in matching the patient and the donor. That is actually precision medicine as it was performed for many years now. And, uh, but we haven't had uh, good tools to follow up um, these patients after transplantation. So this is when I talked previously talked about this gentle request, can you provide us with an assay where we can really follow this patient's journey after transplantation? And this is what we developed. So Chimerism is essentially an assay where we look into genetic markers and differences between genetic markers from the patient and the donor. And then we look which cells are actually evolving in the blood and the bone marrow. Is it as we hope? 
the donor's cells, then we are pretty uh, happy. And this is also a good sign for the patient that you do not have a risk of re-establishment of patient cells. Because in malignancies and blood malignancies like leukemia, this is one of the things you really uh, are worried about, what we call relapse, that is the re-emerging leukemia in these patients. What usually is forgotten is that much of the effect of the bone marrow transplantation or the hematopoietic stem cell transplantation, as the, probably the, the more ideal term, is, is that the eradication of the leukemia is not done by the pretreatment, but by the complete new immune system that is being established. So we know that by establishing a new immune system, we probably, or at least we hope for, uh, immune effect against any leukemia cells that still are maybe present in the patient and eradication of them. So still that we transplant and do it quite well, there's still a risk between 20 to 30% of the patients that have been transplanted for a malignant disease that they actually relapse within their, uh, within the malignant disease. And this is where chimerism comes in. It's an assay to really measure how much of the recipient cells are present in the blood and the bone marrow. If this amount increases, it is a warning sign and may be a sign of increased measurable residual disease, as we call it, um, um, minimal disease of the, of the leukemia, which actually may be working its way back. That's a great overview of, of, of what we're, what the, the solution is. Turi, just to give us a bit more of an understanding, what is the current conventional way that this is administered? Uh, so what is chimerism sort of uh, eradicating or supporting? There are, as, as we were been talking a little bit about already, a lot of home brews. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a lot of needs that needs to be covered. Uh, hence, uh, those having the needs, i.e. clinicians asking lab techs, lab managers, could you do this for me? Uh, a lot of those. Uh, we do see as well a lot of, um, and primarily in the UK, uh, the standard today would be the STR technology, uh, which is a little bit different from uh, what we are producing, which would be the NGS, next generation sequencing. And why we are promoting uh, the technology we do is because of the sensitivity it gives uh, together with the well-designed assay that comes with it. Um, And the reason why we do that is primarily, again, uh, being able to get as much information as early as possible, uh, all in the, in the benefit for, for the patient's safety. Um, and one of our core values uh, within Divisor would be the simplicity. So all those complex bits and pieces that Dan has been describing, and I, you know, you, we could listen to him for another 24 hours and he will have the full story. So there is a lot of things to learn here. But to be able to use that knowledge, um, we have kind of packed that into the divisor assay, uh, which makes it easy for somebody that wouldn't be as into uh, the bits and pieces of the uh, biology that's needed uh, 
to be able to still get that information uh, to your physician and to your patient. And uh, again, there are a different couple of technologies. We would certainly say that uh, the more information you get, the earlier, the better you will be off. You talked about the simplicity there. Um, Dan, you may be able to help on this. From an accuracy point of view and sensitivity point of view, how beneficial is it? I can just briefly describe what the problem is when it comes to chimerism and tumor burden. You want an assay which really picks out the potential malignant cells as early as possible because there are treatment options today for the physicians or the clinicians. They can use donor lymphocyte infusions. They can decrease the immunosuppression, but they can also retransplant the patient. And the less tumor burden you have, the easier this will be for the patient and the clinician to actually perform or less troublesome, let's say th- that way, because troublesome it is in any way, it's a d- uh, difficult treatment. So what we need is an assay which has a good sensitivity or even better to say a limit of detection. You have to be able to detect very far, in my opinion, uh, below 1% of um, this the patient cells. And you want, since it is an assay which is repeated uh, every fourth or every sixth week, so you really monitor the patient for the presence of patient DNA, you want a precise assay. You don't want to be able to think about, now last time I had 2% and now I have 3.5%. Is that within the range of um, uh, assay problems or um, or is this actually a true increase? Because as I mentioned, it has a clinical validity. This is where this NGS-based assay is really, in my opinion, what is present on the market today. Uh, we have a very good limit of detection. It's 0.1%. And then it goes very, very high accuracy and precision up to at least 80, 85% of the recipient cells. And that is beyond, really beyond clinical trouble as you, as, as one, um, as you usually will see. What's the, let's, let's just talk about, we, we, we understand the, the solution and, and its clinical benefits. Where's the the tangible sort of evidence? Have we have we got any examples where this has been implemented so far? Uh, I don't know which one of you wants to to take that, but where have you seen um, impact being made so far with the chimerism? And the chimerism per se is an assay which is performed worldwide today, and um, it is performed in different ways, a uh, little bit depending on um, how much money you want to spend on it and how um which type of assay you use and for what reason uh the the way we use it at the karolinska and also very many centers actually use it they do a very frequent monitoring you you measure the presence of patient dna quite often every fourth week or so to see if anything happens it's it's a regimen of very close monitoring and i'm here coming back to tumor burden. You want to be very early on in this potential process of um, relapse of the leukemia. So this is why some uh, labs do it very often. And other labs do it more seldom. They may have other tools to follow the patient and um, uh, 
much on national guidelines or what the local uh, hospital is actually um, recommending. It looks a little bit different between different centers in the world. But to my knowledge, at least, and I think you can uh, fill in here, it is an assay which is performed worldwide at most stem cell transplantation units, as I know, at least. Yeah, and you're completely right there, Dan. And uh, we have seen an huge increased interest, especially actually in the Nordic countries and UK, which is really promising uh, to me. I, I probably wouldn't mention the names here, but we do have a few centers that we are in close collaboration with uh, over UK that we are in, in contact with and that are starting to use these chimerism tests. With that in mind then, the, the future of chimerism, but the future of precision medicine, as a whole within clinical settings how important in this next five to ten years is precision medicine in tackling some of the more conventional when i say conventional the the more typical diseases including cancer that are becoming more prevalent um in aging populations and as populations grow how important is precision medicine in tackling these and and what part does it have to play in in becoming the ultimate solution for supporting and reducing uh, cancer and cancer treatment in individuals how do you see that unfolding over the next five or ten years it's a make or break sometimes Um, and just as an example of of that understanding the full genome being able to tailor uh, the treatments and not to to kill the patient through the therapy would be one of the um, aspects that we see of this uh, and being able to treat every patient the right way and not assuming uh, one size fits all because it's nothing like that. Chris Wigley says it was like the sorting hat in Harry Potter mm-hmm. where he said that he could envisage <laughs> that people would be able to be told what treatment is right for them at the most appropriate time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dan, do you see the chimerism playing a role in that? Is it more relevant for when the person's ideal treatment has been determined that this solution is there to support that in in terms of helping you being able to actually utilize this assay, this 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 chimerism at the most appropriate time, most by having a pre- precision medicine embedded in the patient pathway and the patient empowerment is is that a big aspect of patient empowerment to have an understanding of what such solutions like chimerism can do for their treatment absolutely um may i just add when we do stem cell transplantation today we do a very much very much of it relies on hla matching of the tissue type correct tissue type between patient and donor The problem today is we know if you take a cohort or a group of patients, we would say, we know that you have a very well-matched donor and the probability that it will go well with this transplantation is quite high, whereas the next patient will not have that matched donor and there's less of a probability that it goes as well as we hope. Now, this goes for groups. But what we want to do is, of course, tailor it for the very specific patient that the physician is able to say, for you, we have this and that donor with these these markers, which makes it very 
um, um, possible potential, the potential curative effect of the transplantation is very high. And for here is like the studies we and others have done is where do you put your efforts? The more you know the patient, the better you will be able to monitor the patient using assays like chimerism to really tailor the treatment because there are treatment options today, as I mentioned previously. And the more often and the more precise you are in actually predicting um, um, a potential relapse of the leukemia, something nobody wants, the better you will be able to treat the patient as early as possible. So this is um, the best option today to be able to define the patient that really needs a treatment option early on. And the, as I mentioned, the better, the earlier or the better we are in defining these pay high risk patients against low risk patients, the better the, the treatment outcomes with, uh, and this assay is basic for that. Well, just just finally, really, what I wanted to touch on, I mentioned it briefly there, patient um, and patient empowerment. And patient pathway is something that is quite new, certainly in the UK, in terms of being able to develop a patient pathway from from uh, diagnosis through to through to leaving the hospital or, or being cured in a way. Now, whatever the disease may be, whether that is cancer, whether that's leukemia, whether that's uh, heart disease, diabetes, whatever it is, as a patient pathway model for everything. One of the biggest uh, aspects of, of most patient pathways is being able to communicate what treatment they're having and why they're having that and what role a particular solution or part of the treatment plays. How a device... Uh, um looking into patient engagement and communication as part of being able to make people who are currently receiving treatment understand the options that they have when it comes to treatment that they may not be aware of and uh, just to take a step back from that in the uk with a current record waiting time for cancer treatment and surgery the emphasis is placed on the urgency to get treatment done and and started very little is being placed on what treatment it will be and why and what specific treatment will support the cancer or the disease that they've been diagnosed with. From your perspective, how important is it for patients to understand from a clinical perspective, moving away some of the terminology and jargon to understand what particular services are going to support their cancer treatment and how do you communicate that from a device perspective? You know, Scott, I just love that question. And that's exactly where we are putting quite a lot of emphasis on right now. We are setting up advisor boards. We are linking to patient organizations, uh, making sure that we are meeting their needs. As we said, in the end of the day, this is for the patients, not for uh, us doing cool technologies. Um, so, again, one of our core values is the empathy. And being able to truly understand uh, what the patient, or some of them don't even want to be called patients, they want to be called human beings, uh, what we need as a person walking into that hospital, I need to understand what's going to happen with me in the therapy, what is the therapy, I might not be 
well acquainted to the words that my physician is telling me uh, still that will affect me when I'm you know saying yes to the therapy how can I explain that to my kids Uh, how can I explain that to whatever relatives being worried for me and my health so again um, I know this is all about the the clinical importance of the heaps of knowledge that has been uh, created Uh, over not only the last decade, even though it has been a a huge emphasis on it for the last decade, which is absolutely gorgeous for us, being able to spread that into something that makes sense to uh, everyday people, if you will. So um, that was a long answer to your question, but to be able to empower our, um, our end users to speak in commercial language, uh, it is of crucial importance that we do understand Uh, what's needed for them. Dan, finally, I wanted to come to you and ask, what does the future hold for for Chimerism, for Divisor? We're we're at the end of 2022. Um, As I mentioned here, uh, you touched on earlier to mention about collaborations and and aspects in the UK and Europe. I've touched on quite a bit, being a UK resident myself, about the situation we find ourselves in. And others find themselves in globally due to the COVID pandemic has, has put a lot of people back in terms of treatment, services, etc. Precision medicine um, is developing at such a pace. Technologies are developing rapidly. Uh, weekly, daily, we're having new discoveries and new areas of treatment. And it's fascinating to to see this. The biggest barrier we face, for instance, in the United Kingdom is, is cost and, and budgets, being able to afford some of this technology, which, albeit the very successful and essential, comes at a cost to some organisations that are already um, behind the eight ball when it comes to spend and, and funding. From uh, your personal perspective and that of devices, moving into 2023, how do you see the landscape evolving around precision medicine and where do you see devices uh, emerging in this, this field over the next next year or so? What is important to understand is that it is always uh, much more expensive to treat a patient. It's expensive to treat the patient the first time, but it's even more critical for the patient and expensive to treat the patient a second time. The problem uh, is that there is very difficult to put the price tag on what a treatment, a second treatment for the patient who has actually failed in the first uh, first line of treatment, what the price tag is for diagnostic. And this is really here where I wish that the diagnostics should step up a little bit. We should be much better in precision and preventive medicine to prevent the patient from actually getting a relapse of a solid tumor or a leukemia because it's, it's many cases fatal for the patient. It's also extremely expensive. So this is where I would see we all put our um, efforts together to improve the diagnostics. Now, the problem for for um, for us at the hospital, if I take the hospital hat on me, is that the only thing that has a very defined price tag is diagnostics. So when you have to cut costs, the easy way to do it is to reduce costs for diagnostics. And I think it's a completely wrong way to go. What you should do is 
improve diagnostics, improve the quality of diagnostics with precision medicine to prevent patients from having an emerging uh, tumor or a relapse or whatever it is. Preventive medicine is always better than reactive medicine, is my opinion. So my hope is that we have an assay. We have an assay which Deviser and, and Karolinska has developed together. We have been running it for two and a half years. We're extremely happy that, with that. And now I see it from a clinical perspective. I would really wish that we could show the world what we have been doing with what we have learned and that some of the um, other centers really see what if we put an effort and change the, the technique which we currently are using into an NGS-based or and precision-based medicine, a more exact diagnostic effort, we may be uh, have better tools in hand to actually um, be uh, doing preventive medicine. This is how, how I see it. I mean, I, I really see it from a clinician point of view, a patient point of view, and I know how tragic it is when you have to retransplant the patient. The outcome is so much worse. You really have to be perform more diagnostics so you don't end up in a, uh, in a additional treatment. Yeah. So basically, we, we need to be looking to shift to a preventative healthcare system over a cure-based healthcare system. Yeah. And precision medicine plays a role in that. Absolutely. Preventive and precision medicine, it's, I think it's absolutely crucial and essential. You will always have... Uh, a, a treatment-based medicine because some patients you will not you will not catch with, with these. But if you can catch eighty percent of the potential patients actually are at risk for having um, their uh, uh, getting back their disease, and you can prevent that with precision medicine, no one would be happier than me and the patients, of course. I think that brings our, our, our chat to an end. Um, I just wanted to say thank you to, to, to Dan. Um, and also thank you to Deviser for supporting this uh, special anniversary podcast series. Um, uh, 10 years uh, of genomic development. And within that, precision medicine uh, has developed in this 10 years. Um, we, we've talked today about the role of the assays, the role of the chimerism, but the role of patient empowerment and the way that we can build a preventive healthcare system. And the future looks positive for that. There will be some challenges ahead, but I believe with collaborative approaches, such as that of the Carroll Institute and yourselves at Deviser, is demonstrative to way that we can actually foster innovation and we can see that implemented as we move forward from 2023 onwards. So um, finally, I'd just like to say thank you to you both and to Deviser once again, and wish you all the best for the future. Thanks for having us. It's, the, it's our pleasure. Thank you. That was Precision Medicine Forum Podcast. Visit precisionmedicineforum.com to get all the show resources and find out about our upcoming episodes and events. And please subscribe or follow on your podcast app so you never miss an episode.